Good morning again, guys. It's great to have you here this morning. And I do just want to say, if, if you're here for the first time, we're excited that you're with us. We hope you feel welcome. We hope that we're able to help you pursue God today. Uh, my name's John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor here at Alpine Logan, and I'm excited to dig into God's Word with you this morning. I've really been looking forward to this Sunday. Uh, we're kicking off a new sermon series this week called Culture Wars, and we're going to be spending the next five weeks digging into the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to see that it has a lot to say to us. Now, I want to make sure before we get too far into this, though, that we establish this isn't actually Peter's letter to the church. This is God's letter to the church. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, Peter's the author in the sense that he's the one who put the original words on the parchment, but every word he put down is exactly what God wanted him to communicate. It's not like God gave him a, a sketch outline and said, okay, Peter, you take and run with it from there. And that's important because if these are Peter's words, then we could say they're outdated. We could say they don't apply to us. Maybe they're irrelevant. But because they are God's words, they are just as relevant for us today as the day that they were written because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And First Peter was written in a time of pretty intense persecution for the church, and Peter knew it was only going to get turned up. God wanted to encourage Christians who were in a clash with their culture. Because for the early church, their beliefs and their values were out of step with Roman culture. And in some ways, it's no different for us today. Obviously, the intensity of the persecution that we face in 21st century America is nothing like they faced but the fact remains, the beliefs and value system of the world around us are at odds with biblical teaching. They're at odds with God's truth. And I would say, unless something changes soon, the intensity of that battle is only going to go up. And the question I think we need to ask ourselves as a church, right here and right now, is are we going to stand with Jesus? Or are we going to stand with culture? Parents, my hope is that you're talking with your kids about all of our sermon series, but if you haven't been doing that, please start with this one. Because I firmly believe when I look at the direction that our culture is headed, that our children and grandchildren are going to face far more persecution for following Christ than we have. In fact, I would say really in America, we have never faced persecution for following Jesus. Now, you may have been shunned, you may have been ridiculed or even mocked, you may have been called narrow-minded, naive, uneducated, homophobic, judgmental. Maybe you didn't get invited to that party that all your friends got invited to. And, and I don't want to minimize that. Those things do hurt. But I have a hard time calling that persecution. When today in countries like Afghanistan and Somalia and Nigeria and India, brothers and sisters in Christ are being killed. Right now, today, as you and I sit in this chapel and we have no fear of somebody coming in and breaking down the doors and shooting us or carrying us off, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that face that every single day. So I wouldn't say we're persecuted yet here in America. But we see that sadly, the influence of Christianity continues to lose its power right here in the United States. In fact, they did a survey recently. Barna did it. Barna does a lot of these church surveys in 2020. And Vicki, I'm just going to let you carry me through. 
And this red line represents the percentage of practicing Christians here in America. The blue line is people who identify as Christian, but they say they're non-practicing. And then kind of the orange line is, is non-Christian. People identify as non-Christian. And we'll see that, that the trend has been for the last 20 years, the number of practicing Christians has steadily declined. And the number of non-practicing has risen as well as those who identify as non-Christian. And I think what's going to happen is those who identify as a non-practicing Christian more and more are going to switch to just identifying as non-Christian. Because why would you continue to identify as something if you're not practicing it, especially when the persecution and the mockery turns up? Cowboys fans, you know what I'm talking about, right? You can relate to that. (laughs) Now, something crazy happened in 2012. If you look on this chart, we'll see there's a big shift and all of these demographics. Now, Pastor Brian did a lot of research about some of the emerging social media platforms that came around about that same time, emerging technologies. I don't have time to go into all of that today, but if that's something that interests you, be sure to check out the small group video. Be sure to talk about that with your mentor or with your small group this week. And the Bible is very clear that this opposition isn't going away. First Peter's going to show us that we should expect it and we should prepare for it. Some of you are probably thinking, I like it better when the glasses half full John does the sermon. As believers, guys, our glass isn't half full. Our glass is overflowing. We have everything we need to stand up to the trials of culture. We know who we are in Jesus Christ. We know the promises God has given us, and we know that this is only temporary. And that's what Peter was reminding the original readers of his letter And that's what I hope we're all reminded of as we go through this series. So let's jump into 1 Peter, starting at verse 1. We're going to look at verse 1 and 2. It says, This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. So Peter starts by identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And there's no clarifying comment there. See, Paul, for example, would often add by the will of God to give evidence of his apostleship. Peter didn't have to do any such thing. Everyone in the early church knew exactly who Peter was. In a real sense, Peter was not just an apostle, he was the leader of the apostles. The next, Peter identifies who he's writing this letter to. He's writing it to Christians, he's writing it to believers. He identifies the audience as God's chosen people. He describes them as foreigners, and then he lists the provinces in which they live, and most of these would be in modern-day Turkey. Now, for some of you, if you're following along in your Bible, instead of foreigners, your translation may say pilgrims. Or some of them may even say pilgrims of the dispersion. And the meaning behind all that is that this isn't our permanent residence. We're just passing through. And based on the provinces that are named, most of Peter's audience would have been Gentiles, and yet he uses this term pilgrim or foreigner, which often was used to describe Jewish Christians. Peter looked at them as being scattered, just like the Jews were scattered after Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. And then the last thing that jumped out to me, 
because we just finished a five-week series on the Trinity, is that Peter references all three persons of the Trinity. He says that God the Father knew you and chose you. His Spirit has made you holy. And you were cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So hopefully you guys picked up on that. Next we go to verses 3 and 4. All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. So Peter said we live with great expectation because we have this inheritance waiting for us in heaven. And we move on to verses 5 and 6. Peter says, And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Now, chapter 1 introduces us to four major themes that we're going to find throughout 1 Peter. And the first one is that as children of God, we are going to be on the outside looking in when it comes to culture. It just makes us out of step with the majority of those around us. And the second theme is there will be trials. We should expect them. We should be prepared for them. The third theme is that this life and its trials are short compared to the eternal life that we get to experience with God in heaven. And then lastly, Christians should face adversity differently than those around us because we know who we are in Christ and we know who ultimately has won the battle. So since we're going to face trials, and we're told here in verse 6 that we should be truly glad, I want to talk about some challenges that come along with that, but also some promises that we can place our hope on. So the first thing that I want to talk about when it relates to trials is trials are inevitable. That's our first point for today. They're going to happen. Again, if we look at 1 Peter 1.6, Peter says, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Peter doesn't say you may have to endure some trials. He doesn't say there's a possibility you're going to have some trials. He says you must endure many trials for a little while. It's going to happen. And the reality is we live in a fallen world. And so in that sense, both Christians and non-Christians face trials that are the result of living in a broken world. And the Bible says that all creation groans as in, the ch- as in the pains of childbirth because of sin. Now, I don't know exactly what that's like, but my wife says it's pretty intense. <laughs> but what Peter's talking about specifically in 1 Peter is not those trials that we face just because we're in a broken world. He's talking about trials that Christians face for following Christ. Trials that we experience because we don't fit into the culture. Because we have chosen to pick up our cross and follow him daily. Insults, shunning, mockery, ridicule, and even violence in some areas directed at us because we are foreigners on this earth. You know, every Sunday in the parking lot, I see some vehicles that have the not of this world sticker on it. 
You guys know the ones I'm talking about? It's just the abbreviation. It's got the cross for the T. And I, I love those stickers, so I'm not picking on you if you have one. But what if we all had that sticker on our car? Would the world agree? Well, would the world say, yeah, they're, they're not like us. They're different. He or she is different. They don't do all the same things we do. They don't think the same way that we think. See, I've been convicted that so many of us count it a blessing when we don't face trials for following Jesus. We read about the apostles in places like Acts chapter 5 where they were put in the, uh, put in the prison and flogged and it says when they left, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And I just confess, I am not there yet. I do not think my response would be rejoicing if I got flogged. There's a part of me that wants to look at the disciples and say, man, you need a reality check. But the reality is they did know reality. They had the right perspective on reality. And honestly, guys, shame on us when we think it's a blessing not to face trials for following Jesus. Because when I read 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that I must endure many trials. So if I'm not, then I'm either not that different from the world or I'm not out in the world. We should be facing some trials. Now, I'm not talking about being a Jesus jerk. I'm not talking about getting up in somebody's face and arguing with them. We need to be mindful that every human being, every human being, not just believers, is created in the image of God and therefore has immeasurable value. So when we speak the truth, we need to speak it with gentleness and humility and love. But we need to speak it. We need to stand on what we know is true. You know, I recently was called closed-minded because I was asked about gender confusion and I, I sincerely responded that anyone who thinks they know better than the perfect God who created them about what gender they should be is confused. Anyone who thinks there are more or less than two genders is confused. And I, I don't say that to be snarky. I don't say that to get a laugh. That, I say that because it's true. I say that because God's word said he created them, male and female, he created them. But our culture has so many people confused. I've been called insensitive and sexist because I'm pro-life. I believe that the Bible's clear that uh, life starts at conception in the womb. Back in 2020, when COVID first hit, I was called hateful because I wouldn't commit Alpine Church to participate in an interfaith Easter worship service. Now, I'll participate in an interfaith service project. I'll participate in an interfaith humanitarian effort. But how can I participate in a worship service on Easter celebrating Jesus Christ as the risen Lord, as the only way to heaven, and then have the next person on the stage lead us in prayer to some other deity wannabe? I can't do that. I had people leave the church over that. Those people still don't like me. And, I mean, that sounds funny. It, it's not easy. It's hard. I, I generally like to be liked by most people, contrary to what you probably think. But the reality is, guys, if we never face trials, something's off. Something's wrong. And if you say, well, that doesn't sound a lot like Jesus, I would remind you that Jesus was killed because he didn't follow along with culture. And he did it without sinning. Trials are not only inevitable, trials will test your faith. 
That's the next main point about trials. 1 Peter 1.7 says this, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Peter compares our trials to the process of testing precious metals. And so when you're, when you're purifying gold, you have to heat it up really hot, and then the impurities will float up to the top, and you can skim them off. In the same way, these trials, when, when culture turns up the heat, it helps us to know that our faith is legit. And I want you to be encouraged by this, not discouraged by this. If you look at the beginning of verse 7, it says these trials will show that your faith. It doesn't say these trials will show if your faith is genuine. It said they will show that your faith is genuine. It also says so when your faith remains strong, not if your faith remains strong. In other words, we should expect to pass the test. God has given us everything we need to stand firm in the face of pressure from culture. We have the Holy Spirit literally residing in us as believers, giving us the power and the motivation to do what pleases God. The other thing that's important here is our faith isn't tested because God doesn't know how much or what kind of faith we have. God knows exactly how much and what kind of faith you have. He knows everything. Our faith is being tested because often we don't know how much or what kind of faith we have. When we come through those trials, we see that we have an enduring quality to our faith. And it gives us more and more confidence in the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. The next thing this chapter teaches us is that trials take preparation. See, we're calling this series Culture Wars because culture is constantly coming at you. And I don't don't necessarily mean in a violent way, but culture is always bringing it. It's a battle. It's a fight. Ephesians 6.12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is an enemy, and he will use culture and any other means necessary to destroy you. And what happens if you go into a battle and you're not prepared? You get whipped. You know, some of you know my son Andrew wrestles for Mountain Crest. I never wrestled in high school. The high school I went to in Florida didn't have wrestling, so I didn't know anything about it. Up until about two years ago, it didn't matter. I could just out-muscle Andrew, and it didn't matter that I had no idea what I was doing. But about two years ago, we were goofing around in the lobby. I confess, we were wrestling in the church, so we were goofing around in the lobby. And he pulls an arm drag on me. I've never seen him do an arm drag in a match before. So as I'm flying over his shoulders, and I know I'm going to face plant in the carpet, and probably have rug burn right here and on my forehead, I'm thinking, this isn't fun anymore. (laughs) Like, if I'm going to goof around, I have to prepare. We need to be prepared. Here's how Peter says it in verse 13. He says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So in this verse, Peter's talking about two different types of preparation. The first is preparing your mind. Too many of us do not give that enough attention. We need to be thinking about what we believe, what we stand for, and why. We need to think about what God's Word says about issues of the day. 
We need to think about how we're going to respond when those questions come up. And this takes work. It doesn't just happen. And some of you, if you have King James Version or maybe ESV, I think ESV has it, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. And if that's what yours says, you're probably like, what in the world does that mean? Well, it'd be similar to us saying, roll up your sleeves and get after it. It's preparing for work. So prepare your mind. Put in the work. Don't just accept what culture teaches. In fact, if you haven't joined us in our reading plan that we're doing, I encourage you. It's not too late. Jump in and join us digging into the Word on a daily basis. The second kind of preparation he's talking about is preparing your will. Peter talks about exercising self-control. In some of your Bibles, it may say, be sober. And the idea behind that phrase is that we wouldn't have any mental or spiritual loss of self-control. So prepare your will. Think about how you're going to respond the next time culture asks you to go one way, but you know God's word says to go the other way. Because when it comes up, if you haven't been thinking about it, you'll probably just go with the flow. Prepare your mind, prepare your will. And just remember, the enemy can't stop you from being prepared. I used to tell our kids that all the time, all those years that I coached, I'd tell them over and over again, nobody can keep us from being prepared except ourselves. So be prepared. And then I love the focus in this verse. What motivates us to be prepared is when we put our hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you in Christ Jesus is revealed to the world. Don't put your hope in the things of this world. Put your hope in the things that are eternal. Put your hope in the salvation that you know you have through Jesus Christ. That leads us to our fourth truth about trials, and that's that trials will lure you backwards. See, when adversity hits, there's always a pull to just go back and live like we used to live before we knew Jesus. 1 Peter 14, Peter says, So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. See, when we get ridiculed, when we get teased, when we get mocked for our beliefs, it's just so easy to go with the flow. It's just so easy to fall back into old habits. We, we start to wonder, is God still for me? Are God's boundaries really because he knows what's best for me? We begin to justify sin. We, we begin to justify why we should go along with the crowd. We, we start to say things like, well, my spouse isn't meeting my needs and I deserve someone who is. Or God hasn't removed this addiction from me and so I'm just going to give in to it. Or God has put me under so much stress and pressure lately so I'm just going to get away from it this week and I'm going to get plastered and I'm just going to forget all about it. We go our way instead of God's way. Remember, our battles are not against flesh and blood. There is an enemy. In fact, he's described as a a prowling lion, and he's looking to destroy you. And he's smart, so he knows when to attack. He knows how to attack. And the harder things get, the bigger the trial, the stronger that pull of sin to draw us back to our old way of living. But at your core, that's not who you are anymore. The Bible says that you are a new creation, that you've been set apart. Back in verse 2, Peter said that you were chosen by God and the Holy Spirit has made you holy. And holy there means set apart. It means you now belong to God. You don't belong to yourself. You are different from the world. And think about the nature of the God 
who called you, who chose you. Verse 15 and 16, Peter says, But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Now God is set apart. That's mainly what holy means. But God is also perfect. God is perfect in every way, including morally perfect. You and I won't be perfect this side of heaven. But we should be set apart. What what, what Peter's really driving at here is that you should look different from the world in every area of your life. You shouldn't look like the world in any area. That's why he says, be holy in everything that you do. So parents, the way you parent shouldn't look like the majority of culture. You probably shouldn't let your kids watch the movies that the majority of culture would let their kids watch. If you're an employer, the way you treat your employees shouldn't be the way that most people treat their employees. If you're working for someone else, the way that you work day in and day out shouldn't be the way that most people work for their employer. If you're single and you're dating, the relationship you have with your significant other should not look the way that the majority of relationships look. The way you spend your money shouldn't look like the way the world spends its money. See, when trials come, though, it's harder to look different than most of us around us. Because we look around and it seems like most of the people who are just going with the flow are pretty happy. There don't seem to be a lot of consequences for not following God's rules. So we start to wonder, is God really for me? Are there really consequences for not following God's boundaries? And this is nothing new. This has been going on since the beginning of time. Think of how bad Noah was ridiculed. Think of how the Israelites were scorned and mocked. If you're ever reading through the Psalms, look at how many Psalms the author is asking, God, why do the wicked prosper? This is nothing new. But the pressure to change doesn't change who we are at our very core. We are a new creation and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. So our lives should reflect that we're holy, that we're set apart, that we're not the same as everything around us. I understand that the trials that we face are not trivial. I get that. I know the testing is hard. I know that we will be tempted. But guys, the promises of God are not trivial either. The promises of God are amazing and we can count on them. So the secret to standing when your faith is tested is to keep the trial in perspective. That brings us to our last thing about trials. That's trials are temporary. They're only here for a little while. I know for some of you it doesn't seem like a little while. For some of you, you can't remember the last time when you didn't feel like you were in a trial. But in the grand scheme of things, in the context of eternity, those trials are gone like that. They're here today and gone tomorrow because it's only temporary. Peter says this in 117. He says, And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. And here's the key uh, sentence in this verse I want to focus on. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as temporary residents. It's going to go just like that. If you live to be 90 or 100 years old, again, in the grand scheme of things, you're here today and gone tomorrow. And, and I don't say that to discourage you. I say that to encourage you. I would much rather spend eternity where there's no more dying, no more pain, no more tears than eternity here. 
I'm so thankful that everything we deal with here is only temporary. Psalm 103.15 says, Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and we die. If you guys were building a new home, but you had to stay in an apartment for four or five months while it was under construction, would you go in and paint all the rooms in that apartment? Would you bring in new carpet or new hardwood flooring and all of it? Would you buy new appliances for it all? No, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because it's not your home. (laughs) It's temporary. You wouldn't spend all that time and energy on money on something that's not going to last. But why do we do that with our lives? Why do we spend so much time and energy and effort on stuff that's temporary? What's getting the most of your energy, your focus, and your time right now? Is it things that are temporary? Or are they things that are eternal? I want to wrap up with one last verse, 1 Peter 23. Peter says, For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. What an amazing promise. Again, God's promises are not trivial. God's promises can get you through any trial that you face. See, our new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. God has a plan for you. A plan that he developed long before you were ever born. And it's a plan that continues long after your time here on earth is done. When we have that eternal perspective, trials look different. It doesn't take them away. We still have them. But they look differently. We respond to them differently. The values of the culture begin to look different. We recognize them for the lies that they are. We recognize them for the damage that they cause. The reality is there's always going to be tension between our identity as followers of Christ and the values of the world. There's always going to be pressure from culture. Trials will come. Your faith will be tested. You will be tempted to fall back into old patterns and habits. But I promise you, you can stand the test. Not on your own power. Because the power of the Holy Spirit resides in you and will help you stand the test. So we can rise above any trials that we may face for following Jesus because those trials are temporary. But the life we're going to experience with Him, the promises we have from Him are eternal. And I hope that gives you guys encouragement as we leave. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful that your promises are rock solid. You are a promise keeper that's part of your character. And so, God, we're grateful for the promise of eternal life with you because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. We're grateful that your word says that when we put our faith in you and we ask Jesus to be the Lord of our life, that you say we're a new creation, you give us a new spirit. Now, we still have old habits, we still get tempted to be pulled into those, but at our very core, we are different. We are set apart. And so, God, I pray that we would be holy because you are holy. God, there may be some people here today who are still checking out Christianity, who are just investigating Jesus, and they're probably thinking, why on earth would I want to be a part of that if I'm going to constantly face pressure from culture? God, I pray that they would see the truth that they they will face pressure, but it's only temporary, and the rewards are eternal. 
We love you, God. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking through Peter to the early church. And I pray that it speaks to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, guys, I think it's fitting that we kicked off this series the first Sunday of the month because the first Sunday of the month is when we celebrate communion here at Alpine. So this is just one of the things we do that sets us apart from the world. This isn't something the world does. I think it's a great way to launch this series. So hopefully on your way in, you grabbed a little communion packet. If not, raise your hand. We have some in the back, and our ushers can get one to you. Uh, They can swing one by. The reason we celebrate communion, there are a couple. Number one, it's a great visual reminder of a spiritual truth. And also, Jesus commanded us to do it. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And likewise, he took the cup. He said, this wine represents my blood, blood that was shed for you, blood of a new covenant. So the way we do it here at Alpine is the worship team is going to play here in just a couple minutes after I pray. And we're going to give you just a couple minutes to do business with God right there in your chair. Spend some time praying, spend some time thanking him for this amazing sacrifice. And then as you're ready, you'll notice there's kind of two layers on the little cup. The first layer will get you to the wafer. The second layer will get you to the juice. And we invite anyone who is trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins to celebrate with us. So whether Alpine's your regular church or not, if that describes your relationship with Christ, please join us as we celebrate. Let's pray. God, thank you for the amazing sacrifice that we are remembering right now. Jesus, thank you for being obedient all the way to the cross. Thank you, God, that that when we put our faith in Jesus, that when you look at us, you see us through the perfection of his blood. And thank you just seems like such a small thing to say, but that's all we have. We say thank you and we say that that we are yours. You, You get to call the shots, God. You're in control. We, we want to yield to your will. Whatever you want us to do, Lord God, I just pray that we would do it. Give us the courage to follow through with that. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.